standing as you're able to do so as we turn to God's word. First reading in John chapter 17 verses 13 through 19. As we're turning there, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say that we are interrupting our uh, regular expository series today in uh, Revelation as well as this, uh, this evening in, in 2 Kings. Um, we'll pick those up, uh, Lord willing, as I, uh, when I return from vacation. This morning we're, we're reading first in, uh, in John chapter 17, verses 13 to 19. Here, Jesus, uh, in this 17th chapter of John, in what's known as uh, his high priestly prayer, is praying for his apostles. He's praying for his, his own disciples. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Our text this morning is Psalm 119. Verses 37, uh, 137 rather, through 144. Psalm 119, 137 through 144. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me. Because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we love your word. We confess our love, O Lord, for all of your precepts, all of your judgments, all of your ordinances, all that you've appointed for us in your holy word. And we pray, O Lord, even as our Savior Jesus prayed for his disciples, so we pray now for ourselves that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. We confess it, O God, to be absolute truth. Sanctify us now in your holy truth, we ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Christian Orthodoxy has always held the Bible in high regard. I trust that everyone here has a high regard for the Bible. But I wonder if it's as high as it should be. I think our behavior as Christians sometimes betrays what's really in our hearts and betrays uh, our view of God's word. The truth of the matter is that God's character is bound up in his word revealed in Holy Scripture. And that whatever his word is, God is. God is infinite, and so is his word. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways. Paul proclaims the end of that 11th chapter of Romans. God is eternal and unchangeable, and so is his word. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. God is perfect, and so is his word. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your word is exceedingly broad. Psalm 119, verse 96. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul, Psalm 119. God receives praise, and so his word receives praise. His word is praiseworthy. Three times in Psalm 56, the psalmist declares his praise for God's word. Psalm 138.2, which we have read and a portion of which we have sung as well this morning, says that God has exalted above all things his word and his name. From that passage that we read in Exodus 34, we, we understand that God's name is a revelation of his character. God's name is revealed in his word. And when the, psalm, the psalmist declares that God has exalted above all things his name and his word, he's putting his name on par with his word. He's putting his word and his name on par with his very being. He's saying that these things express the essence. They reflect the essence of his being. They're a revelation of his divine being. And that's the theme that runs through this section of Psalm 119 that we're taking as our text this morning. That God's word reflects God's character. Why is it significant that the Bible 
associates God's word with his character. If the Bible has its origin in God's character, then it can't be regarded merely as just another book of pious suggestions. If the Bible has its origin in God's character, we can't regard it merely as the product of human authors. If the Bible has its origin in God's character, then it's divine, its contents are authoritative, and it demands your wholehearted allegiance. The psalmist in our text reveals four attributes of God's word that reflect God's attributes. In the first place, God is righteous, therefore his word is righteous. Secondly, God is pure. Therefore, his word is pure. Thirdly, God is truth. Therefore, his word is truth. And fourthly, God is eternal. Therefore, his word is eternal. First, our text reveals that God is righteous, and therefore, his word is righteous. Verses 137 and one. The Bible is a reflection of God's righteousness, his own righteousness, his own character. Righteous and upright or right here in verse 137 are closely related and therefore the psalmist derives the attribute of righteousness that he ascribes to God's own judgment, uh, his own judgment, a synonym for his word from that very attribute of God. He's extracting from God's attribute of righteousness this attribute for God's word. It was God's righteousness that induced him to appoint his testimonies. Another synonym for his word, verse 138 here in Psalm 119, for his people. And it was that attribute of God, this attribute of God reflected in his word that produced in the psalmist a zeal for God's word and a thirst for the knowledge of God's word that he confesses here in 139, my zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. He confesses here that he not, not merely that, he, that, that God's word teaches him about God's righteousness, but that he encounters the righteousness of God In his word. Such an attitude will always irritate a certain class of people who refuse to be bound by God's word. These are the psalmist's enemies who have forgotten his word, who deny his word, who reject his word. 
The Bible is always right. It's always right because God is righteous and always right. God's word isn't subject to man's approval. One of the biggest temptations uh, that people face, even believing people, is to filter the Bible's righteous commands, its righteous requirements, through their own grid of reason and determine whether they are right and whether or not they ought to be accepted and followed. You see how wrong-headed that is. You see how backward this is, especially for Christians. A believer doesn't come to God's word questioning whether it's true, whether it should be obeyed. He rather comes to God's word knowing that it's divine and it must be believed and must be obeyed. You must believe what the Bible says and not what, we, what you would like it to say once you've passed it through your grid of reasoning. R.C. Sproul, in his book on God's sovereignty, uh, ex- uh, expressed his wrestling with the doctrine of predestination. And Sproul said that, uh, by the way, R.C. Sproul uh, began seminary as an unbeliever. Uh, he wasn't converted when he began uh, seminary. He said that he hated the doctrine of predestination. But it was one of his professors there at at, uh, uh, John Gerstner uh, who who persuaded him, after he was converted, of course, persuaded him of the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of predestination. And Sproul said that throughout his ministry, uh, he kept a note to himself in the desk drawer in his study, which said, and I paraphrase, but which said, you must believe what the Bible says and not what you want it to say. God is righteous, therefore his word is righteous. God is right He's always right. And you must believe. And you must take hold of all that he's revealed in his holy word. Secondly, God is pure, and therefore his word is pure. Verse 140 here in Psalm 119. God's word is like precious metals that have been purged of impurities in the fire. That's really the word literally here uh, in verse 140. Your word is very pure or very refined. In other words, God's word 
is free from all error. It can't contain error. It cannot err because it's divine. It's associated with the very being of God. And it's been breathed out by God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I love the passage in Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. God has kept his word. God has preserved his word throughout the centuries such that it's pure and unadulterated. I also love the Westminster Confession of Faith and it's what the the confession says here in the first chapter on the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament in Hebrew which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. God has kept his word. God has preserved his word. And what we have in our hands Today is a pure word. We can be confident in this refined word, this purified word, because God has been pleased to keep it for us throughout all the ages of the church. Over the centuries, every sort of attack has been launched against the Bible. And yet, Scripture has emerged from all such attacks unscathed and always will. It's being attacked in our day, uh, even from within conservatism and Christianity, uh, whether broadly, in the, uh, whether in the evangelical church or, or uh, even in uh, Reformed and Presbyterian denominations. That was, that's been made clear recently as the historicity of Adam has, has come under attack, attack in, in the church. But the testing of the fires of adversity, whether now or in the future, past, present, future, will only serve to reveal its extraordinary purity. Now you'll be despised and ridiculed for believing that God's word is truth. Notice what the psalmist says here in verse 141, I am small and despised. If you you confess before the watching world the truth of God's word, they will ridicule you for believing that this is uh, absolute truth. You'll be called a fool for thinking that this book has been kept unadulterated and transmitted through the ages, kept for God's people. 
Just keep believing. Don't let anything, anyone, anything dissuade you from that truth. You young people who are uh, uh, headed off now or soon to be headed off to college, don't let anyone persuade you of anything differently. God's word is unadulterated. God's word is absolute truth. Don't cave into the world's pressure or theological novelty, but say with the psalmist, verse 141, I have not forgotten your word. I won't reject your word, no matter what anyone says. In verse 143, the psalmist comes back to the theme so often visited in this psalm. The writer's position has involved him in trouble and anguish. And yet that doesn't drive him away from God's word. It draws him to the word. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. God's word attracts me. I delight in God's word. Even though I had faced all this trouble and all this anguish, even though I'm despised in the eyes of the world. And then a thought that has appeared twice before in this section in verses 137 and 142 is stressed once more here in 144. God's testimony are absolutely and eternally righteous, a truth that this time doesn't compel the writer to pledge his allegiance to them, but to pray that God would grant him a greater understanding because he knows that God's word imparts life. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. God's word is pure and it's life-giving. God uses his word to breathe life into our very beings, into our very souls. It's vital to the Christian life. Thirdly, God is truth. Therefore, his word is truth. Verse 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. No, it can't be anything less than truth. Because it's God's word. It's connected to his character. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He also said in that high priestly prayer, as he prayed for his apostles, your word is truth. Sanctify them. In your truth. Whatever God's word, uh, whatever God is, rather, his word is, I am truth, and your word is truth, the Savior said. And it's at this point that the, the neo Orthodox theologians of the 19th and 20th, uh, the early 20th centuries went astray, whose theology, by the way, is still impacting the church today in the 21st century. 
neo-Orthodox theologians, this new orthodoxy, as it was called, argued that the Bible isn't God's word. It merely contains God's word. It's a receptacle for God's word. They held that the Bible is, is a receptacle for the truth and that the believer encounters God's word when he reads or hears God's word. They wouldn't, they wouldn't admit or confess that it is God's word. They merely would say that it contains God's word. They posited that the, the Bible isn't truth itself, but that the believer experiences God's word when he comes into existential contact with that word. But that's not what the psalmist says. It's not what Jesus said. The Bible is God's word because it comes from God. It can be nothing less than God's word because that's true. The Bible is true because God is true. The Bible is truth because God is truth. It can be nothing else. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and everyone of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. When the psalmist says God's word is truth, he means absolute truth. There is such a thing, even though it's not much believed today, there is such a thing as absolute truth. Many uh, understand God's word to change depending on the interpreter. Well, what is truth? Well, you say that's truth. You, you've, you're talking to me about the truth of God's word in this particular passage in God's word, and that's true to you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true to me. They, they wrangle their way around orthodox theology by claiming that's your interpretation What's true for one person isn't, may not be true for another. In other words, truth is relative. It's not absolute. Never forget a conversation that I had with a believer. We were talking about the Reformed doctrine of predestination. And we were talking about uh, the, the, the requirement that, that, uh, of the hearing of the word in order to come to an understanding of the faith. And he said, well, what about the people out in the bush? What about people in the remote uh, areas of the world, out in the jungle? And I took him to Romans chapter 1 and, and uh, verse 18, and that, that passage in Romans 1 where Paul uh, says that, that, that everyone who's created has no excuse. Uh, and we talked about that for a while, and then uh, he paused and he thought, he took out a piece of paper and he drew a straight line on that piece of paper. 
And he said, your problem, pastor, is that you believe truth is that straight line. And then he drew a line above that straight line and a line below that straight line, and he said, the truth is somewhere between those two lines. If this is God's word, if the straight line is God's word, then the truth is somewhere in between those two lines. It's relative, depending on who's interpreting it. And I said to that man, no, friend, that straight line is God's word. And God's word is absolute truth. And if that straight line is not absolute truth, if God's word isn't absolute truth, then it has no meaning at all. And it calls into question everything in the Bible. We must maintain with our Savior and with the psalmist that God's word is absolute truth because he himself is truth. Fourthly, God is eternal, therefore his word is eternal. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Here the psalmist proclaims the eternality of God's word. It doesn't change with new discoveries or new knowledge in the field of theology or any other field for that matter. Other books may change to reflect the times to reflect updated research. Even the confessions and creeds of the church have been changed and ought to be changed when the church makes progress in its understanding of the system of doctrine in Scripture. But God's word isn't like that. You don't have to decide which parts to revise and which to keep as they are. It doesn't change with changing culture. So many attacks on Scripture come from this quarter. Certain things in the Bible, it said, have relevance for uh, in the cultural setting, in the context in which they were written. But they don't have the same relevance to us today. It's claimed. That's been the argument consistently leveled against males only in the offices of the church and for the acceptance, the acceptance of homosexuality as an alternate lifestyle, as well as for day, today's unbiblical view of marriage, sex, and gender. That was then, this is now, things change. Psalmist says, that does not apply to God's word. Your testimonies, your judgments, your ordinances, your word is righteous forever, the psalmist says. The Bible does not change with the times. It's not a wax nose that may be shaped to fit the cultural setting of each age on a whim. And it's the unchanging and eternal character of the Bible that makes it so powerful 
and effective. The gospel couldn't be God's power for salvation. Romans 1.16, if it changed from one moment to the next, the Bible, God's word could not bring peace, couldn't bring joy, comfort to your soul if it were a subject to the turbulence of change to which the creaturely world is subject forever, O Lord. Your word is settled in the heavens, the psalmist declares. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word will never pass away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God's word, a reflection of his character. God's word is righteous, it's pure, it's true, it's eternal. Because, his, because God is all of these things. And his word is a reflection of his character. And that means when you, when you, as a believer, challenge God's word, when you question God's word, When you reject it, you're rejecting him. Because God's word is a reflection of his character, it's inseparable from his divine essence. This reveals a significant difference between human laws and divine law. A person may violate a human lawmaker's law, no matter how blatant the violation, and not violate the lawmaker's person. When Congress enacts law, and I violate that law, I'm not violating the person of the congressman who crafted that law, but because God's law is inseparable from his character, from his essence, We can't violate his law without violating his person. Think about this the next time you find yourself tempted by sin. What is sin? Our catechism defines sin as any want or any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. When I am tempted and when I fall to sin, when I fall into transgression, I am violating the very character of my God. Let this make you all the more zealous as it did the psalmist to know God's word so that you may know God's character, so that you may not violate his word and therefore violate his very person, bringing grief to his Holy Spirit, but rather esteem his word, understand 
that he has elevated his word uh, according to his very person and his name, his very essence. Highly esteem it, and having highly esteemed it, and recognizing it as absolute truth, be diligent to obey all of its precepts. Let's pray. Lord God, your word says that if you kept a record of sins, no one could stand. And that we can't number our transgressions. They're too many to count. How many times have we violated your person, O Lord? How many times during the course of our lives, even as believing people, having violated your law, having transgressed your holy law, having been found lacking conformity to your word, have we violated your person, and especially the person of the Holy Spirit. We're ashamed, O God, that this perspective that permeated the psalmist's thought process here in Psalm 119 Concerning your word, what the word is and and what it does and how it projects your holy character, how it's associated with your very being. We're we're ashamed, O God, that this hasn't permeated our own souls. We ask your forgiveness. Make us a holy people. Help us to regard your word Above all things, O Lord, even to put it on par with your very being, to prize it, even as we prize you as our God, the one who has taken us as your people and has given us this wondrous revelation of his word. Teach us, O Lord, your holy way, in your holy word, that we might be holy people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.